you and uh, find somebody that you don't know and learn their name real quick. Okay, do that. Go. Good to see you. Okay, let me call us back together here. Here we go. We're coming back. We're coming back. Good job. Good job. You met some people. Anybody meet anybody you liked? All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hold on. You will. Okay. Well, let me tell you, tonight we're going to start, um, we're going to take and look at a series over the next few weeks uh, of living a life of worship. Um, I really think that a lot of times we have uh, some preconceived notions sometimes, kind of about worship. We have some ways that we think about it, and what I'd like us to do in our time together the next few weeks is kind of look at this and kind of get our hands around, okay, what, what is worship really about? And, and what does that really mean? I not, you know, kind of take some of the thoughts you've had and maybe uh, put them on hold for a little bit and begin to look at some things and begin to figure out a little bit more about what is this all about? So worship in its simplest definition would simply be this. It's a response. Okay, it's a response. You are responding. And so uh, that, that's ultimately worship. Now, everybody worships. You know, some people go, no, no, I don't. I don't even believe in God. Well, you still worship. No, yeah, yeah, you do. Everybody assigns supreme value to something in their life. Everybody does. And they begin to center their life around that, they began to do life in such a way that, that that becomes the forefront of their life. That's kind of what they, you know, they go with. If you want to find out what you worship, if you want to find out what someone else worships, it's a real simple process. Just follow the trail of their affections. And when you get to the end of the trail, you'll find out this is what they worship. If you want to know that with yourself, look at that. Now, for some people, you know, I mean, it's simple things. Some people, they worship fashion. I mean, you know, you look at them and they're always like, oh, you know, can't leave the house unless everything is in place and looks great and it has to all just be, you know, a certain way. And that's them. And you look at them and I mean, honestly, their whole life revolves around that. For others, you know, I mean, it could be um, academics. It could be something like that. You know, I mean, it, when they sit around and they're kind of like, oh, what is your GPA? Oh, 3.8, that's not bad. <laughs> And you're kind of going, ah, okay, I see where we're headed here, yeah. Because, see, they worship at the altar of academics. Others, I mean, it could be a possession. You know, um, my wife and I, we um, got back. This, uh, this break was uh, an interesting time. It was good. I mean, it wasn't exactly a break. It seemed like everyone in the world was sick. Uh, fortunately, I haven't made it there yet. I'm hoping to stay out, but, uh, you know, of uh, all the different kids and everybody was around there, you know, most everybody was sick. I think little William and I were the lone survivors just about, you know, we were not getting sick. And so, uh, you know, but we were like this. And then um, 
It's interesting, though, when you begin to work a lot of times and you're going to speak on something or you're going to be looking into something, it seems how God will say, hmm, let's check your heart on that. And I think, okay, what do we got? And uh, so this time, you know, I was sitting there and I get a call last night. I had to go out. There was another university and another challenge ministry, and they'd asked me if I would come speak out there. And so I was out there and I get this call and my wife says, hey, uh, uh, can you call when you get out? And I thought, Okay, you know, I thought, whatever. So I call, and, and she says, you know, um, I was over, and I was helping this person with this and doing this stuff, and I was kind of coming home, and, and I kind of had an accident. And I said, uh-huh. And, what, you mean a car accident? Said, yeah, 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 okay. And I'm thinking, now this is interesting, because, see, she wanted this car about a year ago, you know, she had this car that she'd had forever, but since it was in a prior, you know, century or something, she wanted a newer car. So we looked, I mean, we looked and looked and looked, and we finally found this car and she just loved it. I mean, it had like, you know, 20,000 miles on it when we bought it and it looked like it had just rolled off the showroom floor. And fortunately, I mean, in the past year, she'd never even gotten a scratch on it until yesterday. Um, and so, you know, so I, I get home and I find out that this car that she really liked, you know, that she thought, oh, we'll have this for a long time, maybe another couple of days, um, because it looks now like they're probably going to total it, because, you know, when you take the front end and you move it to the back end, uh, you're not supposed to do that, I find, you know, <laughs> and especially the other car that was parked there didn't feel that way either, but, you know, um, what you find is this, everybody worships. Everybody assigns ultimate value to something. And you get your heart wrapped around some things. And what God is intent on doing is helping us to understand, hey, you know what? That stuff doesn't last. As I told her last night, I said, are you, you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. You sure you're okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I said, she goes, but the car. I said, paint and metal. She goes, well, it's paint and metal. I mean, honestly. Granted, it was paint and metal without a scratch on it and only 30,000 miles, but it's paint and metal. Paint and metal. Paint and metal. That's, that's what I'm telling myself. Paint and metal. Um, so um, what do you assign ultimate worth to in your life? You know, have you thought about that? Um, let me show you a painting. I want to show, show you something. Anybody know what this is? Anybody have a clue? We have any art folks here? Yeah, me, I, I wouldn't have known either, honestly. This is a little painting called Salvatore Mundi by a little guy you've probably heard of named Da Vinci. And uh, the reason I show you this, this painting, most expensive painting in the world, just sold for $450 million. Yeah, more than most of you make in a year. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, $450 million. Now, why is that painting worth that? You ever thought that? I mean, did he, like, paint with gold? Or I mean, why is that painting worth you, you know why? Because we decided, by the way we voted to pay for that thing, by whoever bought it, that it was worth $450 million. See, we decided the worth of that. What you find is this. God is the one constant in the universe 
that is not subject to the valuing of men. It does not matter if you value him, if you do not. In fact, you don't establish his worth. You don't establish his value. God established that. God is the one who said, I am totally worthy. And you go, whoa, he said that about like himself? Yeah. Why? It's true. He would be lying if he didn't say it. Or he would let you waste a lot of your life running around chasing after other things. You think, maybe it is this car, or maybe it is this relationship, or maybe it is this. Maybe that's really the thing that's going to put all of life together. And he says, no, 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 no. Let me save you some time. One constant. One thing of ultimate value. Me. And God is the only one who can say that. No one else. No one else can say that. So while everyone worships something, true worshipers worship what is of ultimate worth. Now, discovering God's ultimate worth, discovering his revealed worthiness, what that does is it helps you to begin to dethrone these other things that you've placed out there and that you kind of spend your time focused on all the time. And it allows you to understand that while some of those are great endeavors and some of them aren't bad things, I mean, a car's a good thing, you know, I mean, GPA is a good thing. Those things aren't bad things. They're not ultimate things. They're not to be the thing that you really, I mean, you, I mean, you give lip service over to this, but it's not to be the thing that you really go after, that you really give your heart and you really give your time to. So you want to begin to figure out, okay, then how do you live a lifestyle? How do you live a life of worship? Let me give you a little more expanded definition than our first one, and that is this. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and for what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Let's try that one together because I want you to get that kind of imprinted in your mind so you understand that worship is, say this after me, worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. That's what worship is. First of all, worship is our response. You know, true worship, it's an unrehearsed, uncoerced response to God as he begins to reveal more of himself to us. Now, what we do is we begin to respond with all of our life. You know, he reveals himself to us through his word. He ultimately revealed himself to us through Christ, but we see him in the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. What worship does as we respond to God, worship puts the supreme worth of God on display for others to see. When others see you center your life around God, when others see you center your decisions, when they see you center the way you do relationships and the way you do other things around God, what they begin to figure out is, this guy must really be worth something if these people are kind of, you know, organizing their lives around this. Yeah, he is. In fact, he's not only worth something, he's worth everything. He is of ultimate worth. 
So worship is our response. And then both personal and corporate. Now, corporate times of worship are good because they remind us of who God is. They remind us of what he's done. But, you know, corporate times really take on a meaning only as we're living out the worth of God in our everyday lives. When we begin to live that out and we begin to, you know, handle all of our affairs, the things we think, the way we speak, the things we do, when we begin to handle those in such a way that it really honors God and, and really brings glory to him, that's when we're living a life of worship. So it's our response, both personal and corporate, to God. God is the object of our worship. Have you ever noticed sometimes you'll see guys stand up and they'll sing and they're kind of like, and they don't sing much, kind of like, you know, don't want to sing, you know, really. Because sometimes there's this feeling like I'm kind of just singing off into nebulous space. That's all I'm doing, you know, and I can hear myself sometimes. I really don't want to do that. So I'll just kind of, you know, and what you don't understand is no, 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 no. You are not singing off into nebulous space. Your audience is God himself. The same thing is true when you live a life of worship. The audience is God himself. So it's both personal and corporate to God for who he is and for what he's done. And what I would tell you there is, you know what, worship centers around both. Now, there's going to be times in your life when, you know, everything is just going so well and, and you are just overwhelmed with the kindness and goodness and provision of God for you. And you're just like, worship is just a natural response. And you think, yes, well, who would not worship? I mean, good night. We're at SC. I mean, you know, how better can it get than that? You know, so, I mean, you start looking around, you think, oh, my gosh, you know, just all these things are going well. But there's going to be times, if you haven't faced them, you will. There's going to be times in your life where things aren't going well at all. And you're thinking, wow, I don't know that I necessarily like life right now, and I'm not sure it's really all that good. See, in the midst of that, you may not be worshiping God for what is happening at that moment, for what he's doing. But who God is doesn't change. God is always worthy of our worship. So whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether things are high, whether things are low, whatever the case may be, you can worship because God is worthy of worship 24-7. So for who he is, for what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. True life, true worship is about all of life, all of life. When we Sing words to God, that can reflect true worship. But really, those words are validated in our lives by the way we live. You know, if you, you all know people who have like, you know, they'll sit around, they'll sing something, but then there's something there with the life, you're just like, hmm, hmm, what's up with that? What you find is, you know, the real validation of our words comes in the way that we live Jesus spoke of that in Matthew 15, 8. He said, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And boy, he didn't have kind things to say right there about those people because he said all they do is they talk about this. I really, really, really want their heart to be involved. I want all of who they are to be involved. So worship is a whole life lived in response to the person and work of God, a life that reflects him. 
And probably no passage in Scripture reflects that as well as one that Paul wrote to some believers there in Rome in in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul here lays out several things, but what I want us to look at, he talks about what our great response should be to God and our great motivation for that response. Then he talks about the great threat that we have to actually live out that response, and then he talks about you know the great discovery that you have. And I want us to look at each one of those. First of all, Paul starts off and he says, I urge you. In some translations, he says, I appeal to you. What Paul's doing there is he's using very, you know, tender language as he talks to them. I mean, Paul could have said, I command you to do this and would have been very right to do so because, I mean, obviously God deserves that. He, he could be really straight on point. But what you see with him, he doesn't. He, he has this wording that he uses because Paul, in his wording, kind of lived a life of worship there as well. And he kind of comes along and he kind of puts his arm around the people there at Rome and he says, doesn't this make sense to you to live this way? I appeal to you, I urge you to live this way. And he begins to come in and he begins to help them to understand, you know, what you need to do is you need to live a life where you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, when he says your bodies, what he's talking about there is this. He's talking about you don't, just, you don't just give part of yourself over to God. When he uses the word body, he's talking about you give your whole self to God. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, everything about you, you give your whole self to God. Every act of our body, every act of our, our words, every act of our mind, it ought to be an act of worship as we live that out. You show the worth of Christ by the way that you use your words. You show the way, uh, the worth of Christ by the way you use your mind. You show the worth of Christ by the way you use your body. As one author says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. What you find is this, when you live life encompassed with who God is and what he's about, then others see that through you and it becomes very apparent. It's a life of worship. Now, for me, one of the realities I saw that, anybody could see the national championship game the other day? Yeah, a few, okay. Some people go, of what? Uh, football. Um, it, was, uh, it was Clemson playing LSU. And, you know, one of the things that they showed during this game was they had several key moments. Now, Clemson, I mean, they were the reigning national champions from last year. You know, they kind of gotten dethroned this year by LSU. They had an undefeated season. The quarterback for Clemson had never lost, okay? I mean, you know, go through two years and you're like, how many games have you lost? Uh, None. Uh, You know, I mean, just like, you know, amazing. But, you know, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. You're watching this and there's this one play where one of the linebackers for Clemson, 
comes in and hits this guy and they call targeting on him and he hits the guy and he goes off the field. Now, if you've ever watched another team from down south that has a coach that's about that tall, um, you know, whenever something goes on with his team, I mean, he'll take his headset off, he'll throw it down, he'll be kicking assistance, he'll run around, he'll scream and yell, he'll go absolutely nuts. Dabo Sweeney is the coach of Clemson, a professed believer. Number 47 comes off the field, and he is really frustrated because you've just gotten thrown out of the national championship game. I mean, your mom is going to know that, you know, okay? I mean, you know, you know, you can't really, oh, mom, you know, I left the game early. Why? Well, you know. I mean, you can't really hide that. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, and plus that, I mean, you don't get to play in the national championship. I mean, he is a good player, and he got tossed out. And so some of the frustration is beginning to come out of him on the sidelines. Now, many other coaches, what you see is this, well, that's for an assistant to handle. Or, you know, if I'm going to handle, I'll go over and get in his face and yell and scream at him. And that, several of them do that. Dabble Swinney goes over and you see him and, and the camera cuts to him. And he's standing there and he's telling the guy, he goes, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. And the guy's like, yeah. And he starts walking off to the locker room. And I thought, hmm. I thought, now that's something. Then a little bit later, you see his quarterback who's never lost in two years. Did I mention that? You know, you see his quarterback. He's there. There's this chance to take him down the field, and he begins to drive him down the field, and all of a sudden, as he scrambles out, because he's known as a guy who can really run with the ball, he scrambles out, and a guy strips the ball from him. Fumble. Ball to the other team. Game over. And he comes off the field, and he is like this epitome of discouragement and, and you know, dejection. And you see the coach come over, rip his head. No. He comes over and he's like, he keeps holding his face up, patting him on the face. You know, he's, he goes, it's okay. You know, he's sitting there talking to him. I'm thinking, what in the world? You know, but you know what? You know why that came out of him like that? It's because of what goes on inside of him internally. See, inside, he has decided that. You know, national championships are cool, but national championships aren't what life's all about. You know, football and making the play and winning, that is great. But you know, there's more to life than that. In fact, you know, being on this stage and, and doing these different things, you know, man, that, that's really great. It, it's like he said many times, it's wonderful we get to do this. They ask him in the post-game interview, what did you think about it? He goes, gosh, you know, he said... Um, I kind of don't know what to say. We have, I haven't had to make a speech about losing for like two years. Uh, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to really get my bearings, you know, and I think, yeah. What he's figured out is there is something of ultimate worth that you worship. It's not football. Although football's a good thing. I mean, it's not, but it's not what you worship. As he bows his heart before Christ, it allows him to have different relationships with his players. It allows him to say after the game, hey, you know what? LSU, great team. Better team than us tonight. Boy, I mean, they, they deserve to win that. Coach O's a quality guy. See, what you see is our response should be, you know what? Living sacrifice. 
Now, if Paul's going to call for that, you're going to need real motivation in that because that's a big ask. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the, the chicken and the pig that are walking along and the chicken says, you know, hey, I think we ought to give bacon and eggs to this farmer for, uh, for breakfast. What do you think? And the pig kind of looks at him. He's thinking, that's an offering on your part. It's sacrifice on mine, you know. I mean, and you kind of look, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you know, he's asking him. He says, hey, sacrifice. I want you to live your life as a sacrifice. So what's the motivation for that? And he says this. If you look at the little word there, he says, therefore. Therefore. Therefore what? He says, you know, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, if you don't know about how Paul writes some of these letters to people, he spends about the first 11 chapters of this book, this letter, he spends about the first 11 chapters writing about all the things that God has done. And then he spends chapters like 12 through 15 saying, okay, and this is how you practically live it out. And so in this right here, he says, in light of God's mercies, in other words, in light of what we've looked at in chapters 1 through 11, how God has declared that, you know, we're sinful, but he's also declared that Jesus has died in our place and he's provided a way for us to have a relationship with him and how he is ultimately going to change us and he's ultimately going to bring us to himself. He says, in light of all of that, in light of all of God's mercies towards us, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, all men owe God obedience just because he's God and we're not. But believers especially owe God obedience because you know what? We are aware of the mercies of God. We're aware of, of what he's done for us. And that's why, you know, Jesus points out, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. You know, the more that you understand that, the more you ought to be living a life. So the great motivation for us is what God has done. In fact, if you're not motivated from gratitude for what God's done, there's probably nothing that's going to motivate you. I mean, the bottom line is that is huge, what God has done. And so that's why we choose to live that way. But what's the great threat? Paul says the greatest threat, he brings that up right there. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says the greatest threat to you living a life of worship is getting squeezed into the mold of the world. Because the world is relentless in how they're trying to squeeze you and get you to fit into this certain mode. And he says the only way you do that is you begin to be transformed rather than conformed. And you do that by beginning to renew your mind. In other words, you know, you begin to allow God to help you to understand what you need to think and how you need to think. You begin to accept his values. You begin to look at the things that he's about. And as you begin to do that, God really begins to change you from the inside out. And to be crystal on that, you know, if you're not moving towards being transformed, you are being conformed. You know, you're, it's one where there's not like a third position. You know, it's like one or the other. So you always want to be moving towards that. And then he talks about just our greatest discovery there. And that is... You know, he, he talks about, you know, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, 
right there, that word, it's a word It means to test something and recognize its value. But then also to understand it and to hold it in that kind of value. That word, it, it's a word in Greek, you can't really say it in one word in English. But it's a word, it means both of those things. You not only test it and prove it, but then you understand it and you choose it as, you know what, this is really the thing of ultimate value. And that's what he says right there. He says, if you will begin to live a life of worship, a life of real transformation, then what you'll find is this. You will test and prove what, what the word of God is. And he says, what will you find the word of God to be? You'll find it to be just like God. Good, acceptable, and perfect. And he said, you start looking at, you know, you, you'll think, man, that is exactly what God's like. Now, for me, I don't know, for, I'm kind of a visual person. You, you may be a visual person, or you may be one of those that's not visual at all. But, you know, for me, I always think about that. How do I remember things like that? How do I remember, you know, when I'm walking around through my day, you know, boy, the will of God, you know, good, acceptable, and perfect. How do I remember that? Now, for me, I always see these people that advertise the will of God. I mean, they'll be walking around with these shirts on, and it'll have like G-A-P. And I think, oh, good, acceptable, perfect. Yes, that's the will of God right there. Boy, I see that. all. Thank you for reminding me. You know, and I, I think they've made it into a clothing brand. I honestly do. I, I, I don't know that. But, you know, I think that's true. And... Um, you begin to live that out. Now, sometimes you may think, you know what? I don't think that my life, I, sometimes I'm, I'm trying to work on some of this, but sometimes it doesn't always feel good. Well, mainly it's because it's not always going to be good because sometimes it's going to be hard. But there's a little poem that I wanted you to look at for a second um, by a, a gal named Corey Timboon. Now, Corey, if you don't know her, Corey was a... Um, Gal, she was a prisoner of war uh, in Germany during World War II, saw her father and her sister and others, uh, relatives that died in the uh, Nazi camps there. And, and she was one of the ones that survived. And God really used her to go back and share the gospel with a lot of uh, her captors and, and, and to really have a heart that really trusted him and to really live a life of worship before him each day. So this poem right here um, is one that she talks about. She says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper. And I the, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, <coughs> and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are so needful as the weaver's skillful hand, as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. What Corey says is, you know, a lot of times we're looking at something and we're thinking, I don't know that this is that good. She said, but see, God is skillfully weaving. He's looking at the top side. You're just looking at the backside, and you think, I don't really see what's going on here. And all of a sudden, one day, God goes, oh, oh, and you, oh, you know, and you're going, whoa, did not know that. And he's like, yeah, 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 I know. You know, so what we do is we trust him. 
and we live a life of worship. Worship is a whole life lived in response to the person and work of God, a life that's a reflection of him. So what we're going to try to do over the next several weeks is talk about how does that work its way out practically in our lives? I mean, what does that look like as we, you know, live a life of purpose? What does that look like as we make decisions? What does that look like as we handle relationships? What does that look like in a lot of different areas? And we're going to try to look at that over the next several weeks. But what I would encourage you is this. You know what? Live a life of worship. That's what God has designed you for. That's what you were created for. You were gifted for many other things, but you were created for worship. So live that out. Let me pray for us, and we'll call the band back up. Father, thank you that you have clearly shown us how and why we can live a life of worship. And Father, you have filled your word with story after story of folks who live that out and the great way that you uh, came through on their behalf. So Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, you would give us the understanding to uh, begin to step out, begin to do that, live life in such a way that it really reflects you. And we pray that thing, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.